wherever there's oppression, there are people who are fighting against oppression. And so that's going to be automatically <laughs> divisive and yeah. cause conflict. My perspective is it's not that we need to avoid conflict. We just need to make sure it's the right kind of conflict. So I think part of the problem with race in America today is in an effort to avoid that controversy, we don't talk about it or we talk about it in very superficial ways like colorblindness or something. And uh, what that actually is, is, is what King called uh, you know, a false peace, which is the absence of conflict, rather than a true peace, which is the presence of justice. And if you want justice, you're gonna have to go through conflict. You know, another popular quote is, the arc of the moral universe bends toward justice, well, not without somebody bending it. That's the voice of Jamar Tisby. He's the president of The Witness, a black Christian collective. He's a co-host of the podcast, Pass the Mic. He is an historian, and he's finishing his PhD dissertation at the University of Mississippi. And he's also the author of The Color of Compromise. Though that book is now a New York Times bestseller, when I sat down to chat with Jamar, it was actually a couple of months away from being released. My name is Chuck Armstrong. I'm a writer, a pastor, a father, and a husband who lives in Hell's Kitchen in New York City. And this is my podcast, and this is my interview with Jamar Tisby. Though it took place two years ago, as you can probably already tell, it may be more needed today than ever before. Historians go back and forth about what to call the civil rights movement, um, because there was a distinct historical moment in the 50s and 60s. But in a broader sense, it was part of the long civil rights movement. And so uh, I frequently refer to any effort uh, to promote racial justice as part of the black freedom struggle, which goes back to at least 1619 when 20 and odd Negroes were brought to the coast of Virginia and helped introduce what became race-based chattel slavery. And that the history there, I mean, we feel it in 2018. It's yeah. different. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. So, um, but <laughs> first of all, you know, I think historical markers in terms of anniversaries are very significant because they help us remember where we are, where we've been, where we are, and where we need to go. And so, 2019 marks the 400 year anniversary of that 1619 date mm-hmm. when um, African, a large group of Africans were introduced to British colonial North America. Um, Slavery had to be made, so when they came, they were most likely indentured servants. Uh, They didn't have a model of what we know as antebellum slavery that had to be developed. But, um, and there were also Africans in South America, Central America, the Caribbeans, and, and other places long before 1619. But I do think that's a helpful marker And I hope that 2019 can be a point where collectively as a nation, we look back on this conversation and the events surrounding racism in America, take stock of where we've been, talk about where we are right now, and how to move forward, and particularly within the church. Yeah, well, let's talk about those things. Yeah. And so your book, I mean, you want to talk about a... A divisive, controversial topic uh, amongst certain people, uh, right. the American church's complicity in racism. <laughs> and so first, I mean, where, where we've been, you know, you look back on 400 years 
for the anniversary, but just where we've been as an American church and our complicity in racism. Yeah. Uh, what does that look like? One of my, so the, 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 the sort of uh, impetus behind the book is that even though it's a book about the past, it's really a book about the present and future of mm-hmm. the church. And my burden is that by studying history and seeing how deep and how far the racism goes, we would in the present day develop a sense of urgency about the issue that we tend not to have. So, for example, um, many, many churches, to their credit, do the panel discussion on race or have the speaker or get the guest pastor or, you know, make these gestures, sitting down to a cup of coffee with somebody who's different. Those are absolutely necessary, but they're not sufficient. They're not sufficient if you look at 400 years of racialized oppression, first through race-based chattel slavery, then through um, legal and cultural forms of uh, oppression in Jim Crow, and then most recently through systemic ways that racism acts itself out through mass incarceration or health care or public education. So when you look at that history... And you realize, man, this is everywhere in our society. And it goes back to actually before there was the political entity known as the United States. Well, then my hope is that through the book or just through studying history, you start to get a sense of we have to do something. Like it's not optional. And because it is so deep in such a long history, we have to do we have to do the equivalent of what Jesus did was, was flip the tables in the temple. And uh, because right now the church in America is not a house for all nations, right? Not a not a house of prayer for all nations, and so we have to we have to flip the tables culturally and institutionally in order to make it what Christ intends it to be. Jamar, you know, you talk about panel discussions, coffees necessary, but they can't be it. As a, you know, as the American church, as individual local churches, what, how do we start flipping those tables? Mm. You really want me to get into it? Get into okay, this, now. man. All right, so number one, we have to recognize that racism works itself out both interpersonally and institutionally. So for white evangelicals, the interpersonal part is sort of instinctual to understand. You know, you, you, you personally don't like someone because of the color of their skin and you treat them differently and poorly. That's understood. And then, But if that's your only understanding of, of, of race and racism then your only solution is, well, hey, let's get together. Yeah. And that's good, but that does nothing to change the institutional or systemic ways that racism works itself out. How do you control black people now that the institution of slavery is no longer legal? And so you get things like convict leasing, you get uh, debt peonage through sharecropping, you get all these kinds of different ways that don't actually require you to hate black people. They just require you not to do anything to change the status quo. And so a helpful model I think of um, in terms of race and racism and combating it is what uh, psychologists and sociologists talk about. If you think of a pedway at the airport, it's like a human conveyor belt, and it's supposed to get you to where you're going faster or with minimal effort. Well, the pedway is always going a certain direction. And if you are on that pedway and you are walking with it, then you're actively racist. You're the one who says the N-word. You may put on the hood and burn the cross. And that's typically what we think of as a as the quote unquote real racist, those active racists. But if you're on the pedway and you're just standing still, mm-hmm. you're still actually moving in the same direction. You're just non-racist. You're not actively racist. You're not calling people names or treating people you think differently because of their race. 
but you're not doing anything to dismantle racism. It's not until you stop on that pedway, turn around and walk in the other direction that you become anti-racist. And so what most Christians are, I would say, is non-racist. That means they're not actively promoting racism, but because of the way society is structured, if you don't do anything, then it's going to lead toward racism. Hmm. It's, we need more anti-racists in the church. We need more people who are actually going against the grain of society, which would mean dismantling systems. And I've got a few examples I can give, but that's a rough outline. I think I'd love to hear these examples, but yep. also sort of not just how a pastor can lead a sure. church and flip yep. the tables, but yep. how I, as a whatever vocation I'm in, in an urban setting, how yeah. I can start flipping the tables too. Good. Um, that's a very helpful yeah. distinction. Well, first of all, let me lay out a, a, a rough framework, which I call the ARC model of racial justice. ARC is an acronym that stands for Awareness, Relationships, Commitment. And don't think of these as linear. They're all happening sort of at the same time, but I think all three components are vital for racial justice. Mm-hmm. Awareness means information learning it like what as a student of history i am constantly frustrated by how little sense of even u.s history we have let alone world history um and how little sense of u.s racial history we have uh to to know article four section two of the constitution talking about the fugitive slave clause and how you know escaped slaves could be returned uh, no matter where they were in the country talking about um, you know, the uh, 13th Amendment and the exception clause where it outlawed slavery unless you were duly convicted of a crime, which became another form of slavery, which some people call worse than slavery. Uh, to even know the civil rights movement, all right? If you want to start by informing yourself about history, then start with the civil rights movement because it's so well known and yet so misunderstood. Yeah. Um, so awareness speaks to just having the facts and the information, but that's not enough. You need relationships, right? When Christ came to offer salvation to people, he didn't send a memo or an email uh, or even the Bible. He himself came and took on flesh. Why? So that he could be near to the people who needed him. And in in a similar but derivative way, reconciliation is incarnational. It means we have to do it person to person, relation to relationship. And so you have to get to know people who are different. And for white people, that's going to be really hard. Why? Not just because there are more white people than people of color for a time, um, but because society has placed institutional barriers to integration. So if you look at the history of redlining and how we intentionally segregated ourselves, well, people in power segregated themselves into particular neighborhoods, into particular schools, that means as a person in um, the majority, you are going to have to create opportunities to interact with people. And my only point there is it's not just going to happen on its own. Yeah. Uh, So if people are just waiting to meet diverse folks, it, it probably won't happen. And then so the relational aspect is critical, and that's where most evangelicals, most white Christians stop. That, that brings in the commitment aspect. Mm. So the commitment is where your entire posture is toward racial justice. And that means you're starting to work for systemic and institutional change. And just at the risk of being long-winded, but for example, my personal crusade is that Juneteenth would be a national holiday. Now, what is Juneteenth? It's a mashup of the words June and 19th, which is when um, uh, enslaved people in Texas learned about the Emancipation Proclamation well after the fact, but then they learned they were free. And so Juneteenth is the oldest 
uh, celebration of black emancipation in the country. Now, a lot of people don't even know what Juneteenth is, although some states have recognized it um, as, as, a, as a day of uh, remembrance. But if you think about the historical significance of emancipation, we are talking about the most prominent economic system of the United States for its first you know, 150 years of existence. And then it took the nation's bloodiest war, the Civil mm. War, to eliminate slavery. So this isn't just a, a, a big event in U.S. racial history. This right. is a massive event in U.S. history. And yet we don't celebrate it. We don't acknowledge the fact that millions of people were born, lived, and died in chains, in bondage, and that we finally ended that deplorable practice, and it's just like lost in the annals of time. So I would love Juneteenth. So that's something anybody can lobby for. Yeah. That's just an act of Congress. You know, write, call, do something. Uh, another real practical step, criminal justice reform yeah. is a huge area, and it's so complicated, but one way an average everyday citizen can get involved is get to know your local prosecutor. Mm. They have enormous power in the criminal justice system to create plea bargains, to recommend sentences, to bring charges at all. And yet, they have very little supervision, very little supervision from the public, even though they're elected officials. Very few people vote in the elections. Most people can't even name their local prosecutor. And so unless you know that person, and it's critical because they tend to run on a tough on crime right. platform. They talk about you know, 90, 95% conviction rate and all that. Well, that's great, but it may not all be just. Right. And unless you have the public looking in on the actions of local prosecutors, then you're going to have reams of people condemned to what Michelle Alexander calls the new Jim Crow, where when you get caught up in the criminal justice system, that has all kinds of impact mm -hmm. on the way you live, not only as an incarcerated person, but as a returning citizen. Now, through all this, you know, I am curious, particularly because it's the topic of your book, the role of the church in this too. And so as you give out the arc, yep. um, you know, I think of the Pedway in the airport, and it seems like you can do A and R and just be chilling yep. on the on the bedway. That's right. But when you start walking the other way, that's when you're committing. Yes. Uh, and that, like you said, that's all also often where the church stops mm -hmm. is right before commitment. And so when you talk about these issues, and particularly criminal justice reform, I know that is, and and I, I know you believe this, uh, that it's you know a unique mm -hmm. justice issue mm -hmm. for us today, uh, particularly for that, but for other issues too. Where, what is the church's role today? Yeah. You know, as we look back on our history, as we look ahead to the future, what is our role today in issues like criminal justice reform? It's so easy, I think, to to be part of a church and think, well, that's you know, that's not the church's job right. is to get involved with criminal justice reform. Yeah, and yet it, ha it has such implications. Well, I think part of what makes it difficult for some pastors and churches to navigate what's the church's role is. Uh, if you're a predominantly white church, then these justice issues affect you very differently yeah. than if you are a predominantly um, you know, racial minority church. So by that, I mean in the black church tradition, in, in, in much of it, there has not been this stark dichotomy between the church's role in society and politics or whatever, because politics uh, had an existential impact on your life. So I find it very interesting mm -hmm. that as of our conversation... Um, there have been 200 anti-lynching bills proposed in Congress, and not one of them has passed. 
And so to this moment, we don't have an anti-lynching bill on the books. And yet if you are a black church member or pastor and that bill comes up, do you talk about it? And then if you do, what do you tell people? Um, yeah, don't pass an anti-lynching bill. Who, who cares about your bodily harm, right? right. That's another critical aspect. Yeah. That politics has an impact on your physical body. Um, so I think you can make a distinction between institutional church and then the church universal. Yeah. The church as the people of God. And I think the church as the people of God, whatever your role whether you're an elder in the church or um, a lawyer or uh, uh, a plumber, whomever, you are the church. You are the body. And you do have a role in bringing about justice for the oppressed. Um, I think it is very particular to the particular community, though. So it's hard to give a blanket statement. Sure, yeah. what, what, what needs to happen, though, is that it's just it's, it's, it's absolutely astounding that we sort of separate the gospel and justice. They're not, they're, 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 they're inseparable, hmm. right? You can distinguish between them in conversation, but in living it out, you cannot, how can you say you love God, but you hate your brother? And, and you may not personally hate your brother, but you don't care about what systems are oppressing him yeah. or her, your sister. Uh, then your your credibility as having believed the gospel, I think you need to reexamine. So let's first stop arguing that Christians ought to be in, in, in involved in justice. And then let's look at our particular communities and say, well, where is the injustice taking place? Yeah. I think of Matthew 25 and Jesus talking about the least of these, my brothers and sisters. Who are the least of these in your community? And here's press further. How did they become the least of these? So Jesus talks about the poor, people who are naked, don't have shelter, the imprisoned, and the sick. How do we get those categories of people? Because on the one hand, you can say, well, it's because of their own choices. And they're just sort of morally bankrupt people, and this is where they are. Or you can say, we're all people. You know, we're, none of us are perfect, but there are certain systems that force people into very difficult situations and that's where the meat is yeah. i think we got to dig into and say what are those systems that force people into the categories that become the least of these and what can we do about it jamar as you've done your work